Now, there's lots of times where there are popular, um, well, really urban legends that come out of the Bible, things that are kind of popularly said and done and repeated, but frankly, don't you, you're wondering either, that's not in the Bible, or that doesn't really reflect what the Bible teaches. For instance, I think it was either earlier this year, or actually, I think it was, it was actually earlier last year, uh, the question came up, where is it that the high priest puts the rope around his foot so that way if he dies, they can drag him out? Well, guess what? That's not in the Bible. Uh, that's just you know, that, that's something that gets promulgated all the time, but it's not actually in the Bible. And they would say, well, what about the bells and the tassels? Well, if you actually read, uh, if you actually read the scriptures, you'll find that the high priest actually took that garment off before he actually entered the Holy of Holies. That actually shows up in a text uh, from medieval times. So you're talking about uh, well over 800 years after the temple is even in existence is the very first time you read this. And what you see is it's just uh, someone thinking through the practicalities of what that would look like. How would you go in? Only the high priest could go in. Uh, and so if he got struck down in the presence of God, how would you get him out? But that's not actually in the Bible or prescribed in the Bible. As far as we know, the Jews never did it. Well, that's just one thing. You can also talk about uh, the famous quote by Ben Franklin, God helps those who helps themselves. I actually heard people quote that as if it's coming from the Bible. It's not there. Well, when it comes to the book of Jeremiah, there's a little bit of a, of a, of a myth about him too. If you talk to someone who's been around church and you mention Jeremiah, you'll almost always hear them say, Ah, oh, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. I can remember you used to hear that all the time growing up. Well, there's a sense in which if somebody says that, it may indicate they've never actually read Jeremiah. Okay? Is that because he didn't weep? Oh, no, he wept. But let me back up and think about it this way. When you, when, if someone were to say to you, especially you guys, Jeremiah was the weeping prophet, what's the first thing that you're going to think of? Well, he's a sissy, right? Yeah, I mean, that's what I think. You know, you know who is this guy? Is he a big wimp or what? You know, well, here's the thing. It, it, it could be further from the truth. Yes, Jeremiah wept and mourned over the sin of his people, over the sins of Israel. But he was by no means a sissy nor a wimp. He was a man of iron and steel, one of the bravest and most godly men throughout the scriptures. In Jeremiah chapter 1, in fact, we see God calling him out to be a prophet. He comes to him and he says, you are, to go, you are going to be my prophet. You are going to say what, I say what I want you to say and you will do what I want you to do. And Jeremiah at that time, he's not even left his parents' house yet. He's not even, he's not even 18 years old. And he says, Lord God, I, uh, I, that's great, but I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I'm too young. God's his voice probably broke like that too. I'm too young. But he, uh, <laughs> and God says, that doesn't matter. But what does that matter to me? I am your God. I will give you the words to say. What's more, he says this, do not say I'm only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever, whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over the nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build up and to plant. And I, behold, I will make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, a bronze wall against the whole land. Against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and over the people of this land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail over you. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. 
Now, how could you not have a fire in your belly with that kind of a call? I, I wish I had heard that at 15 when I felt like God was calling me to, 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 to preach. I probably would have done some things differently. But this is the exact kind of man that Jeremiah would become. Yes, he would mourn and weep over the sins of his people, but he would also thunder out the word of the Lord as God himself put it in his mouth, telling of the coming judgment over this wicked people. He would denounce the false prophets who told the kings and the people, God's not going to send judgment. God's happy with you. Go on in your lifestyle. Go on worshiping the false gods. It's going to be okay. And Jeremiah would say, no, it's not going to be okay. You are a false prophet with a false word from a false god. A real and living God says, I will judge my people for their sins. Furthermore, he called out the kings and the priests, those in spiritual authority that we're going to talk about more in a few minutes. And he said, you are wicked and you are leading the people into wickedness. Therefore, Jeremiah lived as a marked man and was constantly on the run, telling people the word of God even when no one wanted to hear it. In fact, as far as we know, he only had two converts. He only had two people that actually heard his message and believed. One wasn't even an Israelite. Abed-Melech, an Ethiopian eunuch who served the king that you can read about in chapters 38 and 39. And then there was Baruch. Baruch was... Sam, if Jeremiah was Frodo, he was his, his, his lifelong companion, his best friend. He was also the scribe, the one who wrote down the prophecies that Jeremiah received from the Lord. And yet in the midst of all these difficulties, Jeremiah served over 40 years over the course of the reign of four kings, all the while displaying a fearless faith and a faithful God. And that's really the theme of Jeremiah, the theme that we want to see this morning. God promised to preserve Jeremiah's life and to protect him from his enemies. <coughs> and that promise empowered Jeremiah to persevere even in the midst of difficult and terrible circumstances. So this morning as we seek to understand all of Jeremiah through the lens of one key passage in Jeremiah 31, we not only want to understand better what God was doing in and through His people this time, but what we also want to see is how we too can follow the example of Jeremiah and live a life of fearless faith because of the promises of a faithful God. Promises that ultimately come to us through God's own Son, Jesus Christ. Now, all of these things of God's judgment as well as His redemption of the sinfulness of His people and yet the promise of the coming of Christ, they all come together in a special way in chapter 31 of Jeremiah. So this is where we want to be this morning and I want to read part of this chapter uh, beginning at verse 27 and I would encourage you to follow along as I do, do so. Jeremiah 31 beginning at verse 27. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. It shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and to bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days they shall no longer say, The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone shall die for his own sin. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. 
This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored. Then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. This is the word of God. This morning as we look to uh, Jeremiah, as we look to this book as a whole, as we look there and see fearless faith in a faithful God, what we want to see are uh, three themes that run through the book that if we will understand these themes, then we will be like Jeremiah. We will be able to confidently put our faith in God and fearlessly live that faith out even in a pagan culture. The first thing we want to see is the power of the true God. The power of the true God. This is one of the key themes, again, that runs throughout all of Jeremiah. God's sovereign power. In fact, we have been seeing this over and over and over again throughout all the prophets, haven't we? You think about if you were one of the few godly people in Israel and you saw all of your brothers and sisters, you saw all of your clans, all the other tribes among your people group, all the sons of Abraham, and as a whole, they were abandoning the worship of the true God, Yahweh, and going after false gods, and defying the law with sin, what is the one thing that would seek to bring you comfort? The fact that God's still in control. The fact that God is still sovereign. Somehow God has not been toppled over. He doesn't know what's happening. That He is still the sovereign Lord who has power over all things. That's why this message keeps coming again and again and again through the prophets to God's people. Specifically, we see God having power over three things in Jeremiah. First, He has power over His people. He has power over His people. As we have seen in prophet after prophet, God's people at this point in time have, been, have become steeped in sin. They have been warned over and over again, and yet God's powerful demonstration of His holiness was about to come. It had already come to the northern tribe of Israel in the north, and now Jeremiah looks forward. In fact, he lives through the judgment that was going to come upon the southern tribe of Judah, the wiping out of His people there, the taking, the destruction of Jerusalem, the capital city. But notice, that's not all that came. It wasn't just judgment that would reveal God's power. Notice what God says again. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. It shall come that as I have watched over them to pluck them up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm. So I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. There's a song by a girl named Jill Phillips, and the, one of the lines in the song says this, Only God can be both the builder and the wrecking ball. That's exactly what God is saying here. He says, I have come in in judgment and I will continue to do it like a wrecking ball, wiping out my people, specifically purging them from their sin. But even in that, I'm not going to stop. I will also replant my people in the land that I have given them. I will rebuild my people up that they might be a righteous people. 
God is powerful over, powerful over His people, not just to judge them, but also to save them. Because He is the sovereign Lord. He is able to save to the uttermost. Jeremiah is clear that God has power over His people, but not just His people. Jeremiah also shows that God has power over false gods. The true God has power over false gods. God says that His people Israel broke the covenant with Him even though He was their husband, we read. Now, as in the other prophetic books, God likens Israel's idolatry, their worship of false gods, to that of spiritual adultery. He says Israel going after other gods is like an unfaithful wife going after other lovers. And yet, God says, those false gods, those idols are absolutely worthless. He says they are nothing but wood and stone and iron. They are utterly powerless. Listen to some of the things God says in chapter 10, verse 5. Their idols, the idols of my people, are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried. They can't even walk. Do not be afraid for them, for they can do no evil, neither is it in them to do good. He says, well, what do you do? How does a scarecrow get in the, in the cucumber fields and the birds won't get in there? You have to stuff it up. You've got to put it on the pole. You've got to carry it out to the field and chunk, put it in there. He says, that's what the false god is like. What is it going to do? It can't walk. It can't do anything good. It can't even say, hey, get away from the cucumbers. Hey, get away from the cucumbers. It can't do anything. He says, why do you worship this thing? It is worthless. He goes on. Verse 18 of the same chapter, they are stupid and foolish. They are receiving the instruction of idols that are just wood. He says in verse 50, declare among the nations and proclaim. Set up a banner and proclaim. Conceal it not and say, Babylon is taken. Bel is put to shame. Merodach is dismayed. Her images are put to shame. Her idols are dismayed. Jeremiah is saying even the very people that he is using to punish his people, the four nations around them who have, who have caused their false gods to come in and be among his people, he says, I am going to take them all down and put their false gods to shame. You know, the, the mark of a god was, did he protect his people? And so people felt like as long as they were in kind of their, their, their sphere of power, as long as they were close to the idol or the temple, that God would protect them. And God says, you will see that they will not be protected. That those gods are worthless. I will put them to shame by bringing judgment upon them and the pagan people who worship them. Idolatry was huge in Israel. And so we have to ask this question, don't we? If the idols were worthless, why did God's people go after them so fervently? I mean, clearly, I mean, you have in Isaiah a passage that talks about uh, the, the other prophet, where a guy chops down a tree and he uses half of it for firewood. He takes the other half and he carves a face into it and a, and a little ghoulish grin and some hands on his feet and he puts it up on a block of wood and he bows down to it and says, there's my God. He just made it out of a, of a, of a tree trunk. Well, why would they go after these things? Why would they do that when they knew the true and living God? Here we get into the real problem that Israel faced. And yet even that, even this desperate deep problem was not something beyond God's control. The third thing that we see is God's power over sinful hearts. God's power over sinful hearts. <coughs> a couple of years ago, a 23-year-old construction worker from Littleton, Colorado named Patrick Lawler went to see his dentist. 
all week he had had a, what he thought was a toothache. And he had tried, uh, when I heard this, it, it kind of cracked me up. It's like, yeah, it sounds like something a guy would do. He's trying to eat ice cream, thinking that, that the cold would dull the pain. It was like, yeah, ice cream is medicine. That's cool. I like that. But he's also taking ibuprofen and aspirin. He's trying to, and he just cannot get relief from what he thinks is a toothache. So he goes to the dentist after a week, and he, and, uh, he says, I, you know, I've got a cavity or something. So the dentist says, okay, let's check it out. And he looks at his teeth. He can't really see anything wrong, so he takes an x-ray. You know, those things are like, da 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 it's instant. And it's not, you know, sending them off somewhere and getting them back. It's going to the other room. And he comes back and says, well, I've got some good news. You don't have a toothache, but I also have some bad news. You have a four-inch nail in your head. Now, Lawler thinks back and realizes a week ago when this pain started, he was working with an, with, with an, with an air nailer uh, on the construction site, and the thing had backfired, and a nail had whizzed right past his face and lodged in a piece of wood behind him. But what he didn't know was that two nails had backfired. The other had gone straight into his mouth, up his palate, barely missed his eye, and was lodged an inch and a half in his brain. So they immediately rushed into the hospital and uh, cracked open his skull. They said they gently pushed his brain over and slid the nail out. And the surgeon was quoted as saying, if you have to have a nail in your brain, that's the way to have it. <laughs> Thanks for that, doctor. The whole time this guy is in pain and he's thinking, it's just a toothache, it's just a toothache, it's just a toothache. I need to get a tooth pulled, I need a root canal, I need something. But all the while there is this much more severe problem going on. The man has a nail in his brain. And in some ways that is the story of Israel. In verse 32, the Lord reminds us that Israel broke the covenant that he had made with them even after they brought them out of Egypt. In fact, they kept breaking the covenant. They kept engaging in wicked behavior. But that was not the worst of their problems. The worst of their problems was the reason why they kept rebelling, the reason why they kept breaking the covenant, the reason why they kept going for wickedness. It was because they had a sinful heart. It's because the very core of who they were, their very souls were corrupted by wickedness. And thus they would keep sinning. They would keep living wickedly because they had a deeper problem that they could not see. Consider some verses from Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 5, he tells his prophet, Declare this in the house of Jacob, proclaim it in Judah. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but see not, who have ears but see not. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble before me? I place the sand as a boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and gone away. They do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord or our God who gives the rain in its season, the autumn rain and the spring rain and keeps us for weeks and appoint it for harvest. Your iniquities have turned these away and your sins have kept you from good. God says, the hearts of my people are stubborn and rebellious and lead them away from me. Even when they are confronted with my power and my majesty, they do not turn towards me in fear, but indulge in the wickedness of their hearts. In chapter 9, we read that it's their sinful hearts that lead them away from the true God to idols. They have stubbornly followed their own hearts and have gone after the Baals, the Lord says. The final verdict comes in chapter 17, where Jeremiah asks, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This is Israel's problem. 
It may look like that they're engaging in violence and they're engaging in all kinds of sexual immorality and that they're engaging in false worship. But all of those things are simply symptoms of the larger, more radical issue. They have a sinful heart. And as long as they have a sinful heart, what is going to come out of their mouths, come into their minds, and be carried out with their hands and their feet? It's sin. It's sin. And in fact, the Bible tells us that wasn't just the condition of the ancient Israelite. That's the condition of all of humanity. Every person who's ever been born for all time, we have wicked, sinful hearts. We love sin and we don't fear God. The result is that we do what we want to do, when we want to do it, making false gods that we give our worship to. In other words, our problems are far worse than a mere toothache. We don't just struggle with bad habits. We aren't just the victim of our addictions. We are sinners. Our hearts are corrupt. And it's this spiritual dilemma that has led Israel away from the one true and living God, and the result is judgment. But he's already promised to forgive them, to save them, to replant them as a new vineyard in the field. How can he do this if they have sinful hearts, though? Won't they just fall back into sin? Won't they just continue to go after the false gods? The answer we see, again, is God's power. God has power over even sinful hearts. And the answer that God gave to Israel and the answer that he gives to us today is this. If humanity's heart is wicked, if it will always go after sin, then God will simply give people a new heart. He will simply give people a new heart. He says, days are coming when I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. That was the hope of Israel and it's our hope today. It's a hope that is realized in the promise of a new covenant. This is the second major theme we want to see in the book of Jeremiah, the promise of a new covenant. We saw the power of the true God and now we see the promise of a new covenant, specifically in verses 33 through 34. You know, when I first came to this church, I've been here about a year, <clears throat> and Tom Martin, our associational director of missions, asked if I would help out teaching um, some classes called Christian Leader Training. They were held at the associational office, and the people would come in on a Monday night for about uh, two hours, I think, or maybe three hours, but uh, we, they would go back and forth between teaching sections out of our statement of faith, the Baptist faith and message, and then some practical things like how to conduct a business meeting and how to lead a Bible study and those kind of things. And um, having a newly minted seminary degree, he said, why don't we put you to work teaching some of these classes? And I said, uh, sure, no problem. And so my very first class that I was supposed to teach on was the theme, the kingdom of God, unpacking uh, our statement on what the kingdom of God was from our, um, uh, from our, 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 doc our doctrinal statement. Now, when I went to show up in that class, nobody knew who I was. In fact, Pastor Richard, I don't know if you remember this or not, he was in that class. He was not Pastor Richard then. He was not even a member of our church then. He had met me one time before at my installation service here, and that was it. So none of these people know who I am. They don't know anything about me except I'm a young, lot younger than they are, a new pastor, and they're thinking, you know, probably a little bit, who is this whippersnapper kind of thing, okay? And so uh, Pastor Richard's literally, he's the very first person, he's sitting on my immediate right in this horseshoe of all these people. And I said, okay, tonight we're going to talk about the kingdom of God. We took some prayer requests, we prayed, and I said, okay, listen to this verse, and here's what I read. It's right from our thing. In those days they shall no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone shall die for his own sin. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. And I remember looking up and the first person I looked at was Richard. And then my eyes scan around and they're all, they're all looking the same way. Do you remember this? And they're all going like, 
what does that have to do with the kingdom of God? I mean, you know, is this guy loco? You know, I mean, what is going on here? You know, and, 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 I, and I, that was, you know, that, that was the initial. I think by the end of that class, they all got it. I hope they did. Uh, but uh, um, this is essential to understanding the difference between God's kingdom in the Old Covenant and God's kingdom in the New Covenant. If you don't get this principle, then, then you don't understand the difference between Israel and us, the church. The difference is simply this. In the Old Covenant, there was a tribal corporate uh, nature to that covenant that meant when one generation of sins, it has lasting effects for the coming generations. You couldn't just have one guy sins, now the judgment's on him. No, one guy sins, and now uh, everyone suffers. The, the, the fathers is not just an individual dad, but rather those that were in leadership in the covenant community, the priests, the, 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 the prophets, the kings, when they sinned, all of the nation felt it. When the father sinned, the children suffered. And certainly today there are indirect consequences for our sin. So uh, if I go out and I get in, do something illegal and get thrown in the clink, guess what? My family suffers, right? M my kids suffer. But God does not hold them accountable for my sin. You see the difference there? That was not the case in the Old Covenant. The leader sinned and the whole people were held accountable for that sin. Everyone suffered under the act of judgment of God for that sin. So that even Jeremiah himself, a godly prophet, a stalwart, a stalwart for God, he suffers in exile because of the sins of God's people. But God says the new covenant's going to be different. The new covenant's going to be different. If you eat a sour grape, your children aren't going to go, oh, man, that's sour. No, when you eat the sour grape, you feel it, and that's it. The kid might get the sweet grapes. You may experience judgment and your child may experience the blessing from God because here's the key concept. God's presence, God's power, God's salvation, the relationship that we have with God is now no longer mediated through other people. In the Old Covenant, you, you stood far back from God and you only got to God through prophets, priests, and kings. They had to go and there was someone in between you and them, someone that you could see and talk to. And, and unless they were right with God, you weren't going to be right with God. And now that's no longer the case. Listen to what God says. Behold, days are coming, verse 31, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. If you read the theology books, some people will say the new covenant is just a reissue of the old covenant. It's just through Christ. No way, man. No way. And in fact, if you want the word of someone other than the pastor on that, just turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 8, a divinely inspired author who looks back, who quotes this passage. It's the, it's the longest quote from any Old Testament text in the New Testament. And here is the inspired comment he makes right after that. And speaking of a new covenant, God makes the first one obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing hold is ready to vanish away. 
Hebrews looks back and says, look, if God's saying there is a new covenant coming, that means the old one is not going to go on forever. It's now old. It's outdated. It's obsolete. And it's going to go off the scene never to be thought of again. Hebrews is saying that now the, the new covenant has come in Christ. It really is new and the old is gone. So the question is, how is the old old and how is the new new? Why was it obsolete and why was there need of another one? Well, first of all, you see in verse 32 that the old covenant wasn't strong enough to transform the people. They broke it over and over and over again. It could not make them righteous and holy. They could not keep the covenant. God says, but that's not going to be the case now. The new covenant will be different. It will transform the people. He says, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. In the Old Covenant, the law was external, written on stone. It was something they looked at and tried to obey. And now God says, no, I'm going to etch it right into their souls. I'm going to, to give them new hearts that be with a love for me. Then he says, verse 33, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Now what does that mean? Some people say, see, we shouldn't, we shouldn't have teachers now in the church. Well, that's not what it's talking about. Again, you have to go back to this idea of mediation. The priests of the Old Covenant were mediators. The larger Levites were the special teachers of the law. The prophets were to be the mouthpiece of God to the people telling them, uh, you need to go back and obey the law. You're not doing it right. Or here's a new word from God about what you should be doing. The kings were to enforce the law, to set the example by their own lives and make sure that justice was carried out. They were mediators of God's truth. And now God says, all that's done. He says, you know, in the Old Covenant, you could have someone who was ethnically Jewish. They were an Israelite by birth, but that didn't make them a believer. That did not make them a saint. That didn't make them someone who actually trusted in God for salvation. And so the priest would go telling them, know the Lord, know the Lord, know the Lord, trust in Him. And God says, not the case now. If you're in the covenant, you know the Lord in the New Covenant. There is no people that are here by special status. You're either in or you're out. And so I can, I, I can bring my kids to church and they can sit under the teaching of God's Word and I can teach them to memorize Romans 8 at home. I can tell them about Jesus, but they are not part of the covenant unless they know the Lord, unless they profess faith in Christ, unless they embrace Him as Savior and follow Him as Lord. And so now the point is simply this. Now in this new covenant, as a teacher, as a preacher, you have to understand there's no difference between our relationship with God. There's, there's no distinction here. I am not a mediating presence between you and God. You, you can stop right now if I'm saying something stupid and just get up and walk out until God thanks for giving me the discernment to see that. Okay? No problem. Except for me. I have a higher accountability as the one teaching this word. The only thing that sets me off is calling, experience, and maturity. That's the only thing that makes me different. In fact, D.A. Carson, he says, now in this new covenant, we are all part of the same body. There is no special clans. There are no special tribes that set me apart. He says, pastors are just like the stomach. We take in all the food, break it up, and distribute it to the parts of the body that need it. Yeah, that glorifies teaching ministry, doesn't it? You're the stomach, you know. I don't know what part of the stomach I am. But you get the, you get the point, okay? Yes, there are teachers, but it's not because we have an in with God. No pastor, no teacher, no student professor can ever get up and say, by authority of my position, I am infallible. I have it in with God, and you must obey me as such. The priests could do that. The kings could do that. The prophets could do that. We can't do that now. 
not because we're somehow less, but because all of us are more. Now we all know the Lord. Those old structures are gone. Now there is only one mediator, one high priest, one prophet, one king, Jesus Christ himself. Under the old covenant, again, the people had to go to these mediators. But when the mediators failed, then the people also suffered. Now that's gone. If I fail, it doesn't mean anything for you. Because Christ is your mediator. He is the flawless king priest. He is the one who makes you to know the Lord. And so the greatest blessing of all comes in hearing God say, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember it no more. Was that under the old covenant? No. Every year God remembered their iniquity and had to forgive them. Every year they had to gather at Jerusalem for the day of atonement and the sacrifice for the sins of the people. And then they were forgiven, but he remembered it again, and he remembered it again, and he remembered it again. There was this endless repetition of sacrifices, but not anymore. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. John calls Jesus the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Paul tells the Corinthians, Jesus is the Passover Lamb. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus has come as the perfect sacrifice as on the Day of Atonement. But like all these other sacrifices, Christ died once and dies no more. He is raised back to life for all time so that all the sins of the people, past, present, future, have been handled by His one sacrifice. There are no more sacrifices for sins needed. Your guilt is gone because Christ has borne it upon Himself. And so the greatest assurance that we have in the New Covenant is what Many of us saying growing up, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. That's the glory of the new covenant. Even in the midst of failures, we need no other argument than this. God has said, I will forgive their sins forever in the new covenant. And now, now that new covenant has come in Christ. God assured Jeremiah that it was going to come. And he assures us that it's in force by a proclamation of his certain word. This is the last thing I want to look at this morning. The proclamation of a certain word. Certain, not in the sense of specific, but in the sense of assured, reliable. At the very beginning of Jeremiah's call to ministry, read this. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. And the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. We read that and we say, what? What did he say? I saw an almond branch. You saw well. I'm watching over my word. What does that mean? Well, this is one of those times where you only get it in the Hebrew or if you've got a study Bible. The word for almond sounds like watch in Hebrew. The words sound the same. Then what, so what, what G- God is doing for Jeremiah is putting this image in his face, this giant almond branch. And he's like, okay, I, I see the almond branch. He says, remember, when you see the almond branch... I am almonding over my word. I am watching over my word. I am going to ensure that it accomplishes what I have set it out to do. There was a surety, a certainness to the word that God was going to perform through Jeremiah. The same is true here. Notice what he says. After he promises the amazing new covenant, verse 35, thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is His name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before before me forever. 
Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured, and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. What is he saying? The promise of the new covenant is this. It will happen. It is a sure thing. In fact, do you want to know how sure that it is? Just look around. Look around at the stars burning in the sky. Look at the moon who goes through pattern after pattern after pattern, never wavering. And think about how it pulls on the earth so that the tides go in and out. Think about gravity itself, the very order of things and how I have established the universe to run. And he says, if those things were to fail, okay, then, then, then you may be able to doubt that I will take care of Israel. But just as you can guarantee, those things will not fail. I have built them into the very nature of the universe, and I continue to keep things moving along that course. So also, you can believe, I will not fail to keep my word. In the fullness of time, God did exactly what he said he would do. He came and ratified through the death and resurrection of his son the new covenant to his people. Here I want us to stop and ask the question, do we see the word of God as a certainty? Not just promises he has made fulfilled in Christ, but when you open up the book to see what it says about God, what it says about his people, what it says about how we should live, how do you respond to the word? When Jeremiah was given the word of God in chapter 15, he says, your words were found and I ate them. Your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. In other words... It became like one of Melinda's pot roast dinners on a Sunday afternoon. Oh, thank you. That's great. Put it right in my mouth. Eat it. The joys my heart. Delights in it. Have you ever read the Word of God that way? Have you ever read it and just said, oh, that's like food for my soul. That puts a smile on my face. That gives me something solid to grow and to live on. You know, Jeremiah gives us two amazing contrasts in two kings. Two different kings, that is to say. When Jeremiah begins his ministry, it is under the young reforming king of King Josiah. At the beginning of the book, Jeremiah says, He was king when I began my ministry. Josiah was the last godly king of Judah before Jerusalem fell. In 2 Kings 18, we read Jerusalem, in second, the book of 2 Kings. When Josiah is 18 years old, he began reigning at 8 years old, he begins to fix up the temple. And he wants money collected to give to pay the people to, fi to fix it up. And while they're, while they're collecting things out and cleaning things up, guess what they find? The law of God. Now think about that for a minute. The law had to be found. This was a thing God gave them that, that was supposed to guide in every part of their life. And yet here it is buried behind some bags of gold or something. Nobody even knows what it is. And, and the guy picks it up and he says, we found this book. And he says, huh. And he, you know, it was probably a scroll. So, you know, so he's like, you know, you know. And he unfolds the thing and he, he starts to read. And he's reading likely the book of Deuteronomy where God is saying, I am to be your God and you are to be my people. You are to have no other gods before me. You are to keep my day holy. You are not to profane my name or else judgment is going to come. But if you remain my people, blessing will come. And I imagine this dude's eyes just get wider and wider and wider because he knows what Israel is like. He knows what happened to them and what's about to the north and what's about to happen to them. And he freaks out and he rolls over and says, we've got to take us to the king. So they run and they take it to the king. And so we found this, we found this scroll in the temple. You've got to hear this. And so Josiah says, well, fine, dude, read it. Let, let's hear, what, what is this thing? And again, the law is written. You shall have no other gods before me. I am the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I am your Savior. Love and serve and worship me alone. We read in 2 Kings twenty two eleven. 
when Josiah heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. As the mediating leader of the people of God, he realized we are a bunch of sinners deserving to be a grease spot in the land of Judah. And so he tears his clothes, mourning and weeping, not because he's been a particularly bad guy, but because he realizes he is the leader of a particularly bad people who have turned their back on their God. And he immediately begins to say, if this is what God's word says, if this is really his word to us, then we've got to live it out. And so he starts changing how justice is carried out in the courts. He starts changing how the people of God worship, destroying the, 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 the idolatrous temples and telling people, come back to the temple and do what the Lord says. That's one response to God's word. But then there's another one. There's another response that we see in Josiah's son, King Jehoiakim. Jeremiah receives God's word. He tells Baruch to write it down so it can be read to the leaders of Judah. And as with Josiah, the people who first hear it take it to the king, King Jehoiakim. And in Jeremiah 36, we read that as the court official would read three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire pot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard these words was afraid, nor did they tear their garments. How do we respond to God's word? Now, I doubt very much that we pull out our knife and don't like that one, don't like that one, don't like that one. But don't be so quick to think that we don't have the same attitude as King Jehoiakim. In his book, Dug Down Deep, Pastor Josh Harris talks about counseling a young woman in the church who was in an immoral relationship with a a non-Christian boyfriend. She said this, quote, I asked God for a sign so that I could know what to do. I know that God brought him into my life for a reason. Harris opened the Bible with another pastor and showed her from 1 Corinthians 6, from Ephesians 6, from 1 Thessalonians 4, all texts showing her her behavior was wrong, it was sinful. And he asked her, do you see what God says that what you're doing is wrong? And in response she said this, quote, yes, I see that. I know it's immoral. I'm just asking God to show me what to do. She said she thought about breaking off the relationship and prayed, asking God for a sign. And on the anniversary of their very first date, he sent her flowers. And she asks, was that a message from God? If that's how we're going to treat God's word and respond to it, we might as well take out the knife and start cutting it up page by page, the parts that we don't like, and throwing it into the fire to keep us warm. Because we're no better than King Jehoiakim. We're no better than anyone who looked at God's word and said, I like my sin better than this, and ignored it. That's not how we're supposed to respond to God's word. Like King Josiah, like Jeremiah, it is supposed to cause us to rend our clothes, not just our clothes, rend our hearts before God and say, I realize that I am a sinner deserving of your wrath. God, please forgive me in your mercy. We are supposed to take it in, symbolically eating it, that it may treat it as if it is food for our souls. It's only when we see the certainty of God's word and we treat it as the certain word from God that we will find ourselves built up in the kind of fearless faith that Jeremiah had. From the outset of his initial call, Jeremiah doubted his ability to fulfill his calling because of his age. I'm too young, he thought. 
What's your excuse today, Christian? Perhaps you're telling yourself the same thing. I, I, I'm too young. I'm still living with my parents. So what in the world can I do? I'm not old enough. I'm not a pastor. I'm not gifted enough. I'm not holy enough. I don't have time enough. I'm not settled enough. My life is not in the right place. Loved ones, it does not matter how unfit you are. If you are one of God's people, all that He requires is that you trust Him. That you see Him as the one who has power over all things. That you see Him as the one who is taking care of your greatest problem, the wickedness of your heart, and sending Christ in the new covenant. So that if you have repented of your sins, turned towards Him in faith, you can continue to serve Him in powerful and mighty ways. Because just as He has protected Jeremiah, frankly, He will protect His people. Jesus said, I will build my church. Not I want to build my church. Not I'm going to help you build my church. He said, I will build my church. And as long as you are seeking to live in such a way as to be involved in the building up of that church, then nothing can stop you unless God allows it. Nothing can stop you unless God allows it. If we trust in God through Christ when we trust that He has made promises to us and He has sealed those promises as a guarantee through His Son, Jesus Christ, then we will be able to find ourselves living a life of fearless faith just like Jeremiah. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for Your Word to us. We are thankful, God, for what we can see and being taught it. Father, we pray that You will continue to be with us even now as we look to celebrate at Your Lord's table. God, help us to see that that all that you have promised for your people has been fulfilled in Christ. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.